Hello everyone, welcome back to Studying for Nursing School. This is Michael, and today we're going to go over the anatomy and physiology of the female reproductive system. Uh, last time we went over the male reproductive system, and we still have one more part after this. Uh, it'll just be a summary of the main components of the male and female reproductive systems and how they develop. Uh, if you guys like what you hear, go ahead and leave a review on whatever listening platform you are on at the moment, whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you are listening to this app. And with that out of the way, I will get started here with the female reproductive system. The female reproductive system functions to produce gametes and reproductive hormones, just like the male reproductive system, however, it also has the additional task of supporting the developing fetus and delivering it to the outside world. Unlike its male counterpart, the female reproductive system is located primarily inside the pelvic, cavi pelvic cavity. Recall that the ovaries are the female gonads. The gamete they produce is called an oocyte. We'll discuss the production of oocytes in detail shortly. The external female genitals. The external female reproductive structures are referred to collectively as the vulva. The mons pubis is a pad of fat that is located at the anterior over the pubic bone. After puberty, it becomes covered in pubic hair. The labia majora are folds of hair covered skin that begin just posterior to the mons pubis. The thinner and more pigmented labia minora extend medial to the labia majora. Although they naturally vary in shape and size from woman to woman, the labia minora serve to protect the female urethra and the entrance to the female reproductive tract. The superior and anterior portions of the labia minora come together to encircle the clitoris an organ that originates from the same cells as the gland's penis and has abundant nerves that make it important in sexual sensation and orgasm. The hymen is a thin membrane that is sometimes partially covers the entrance to the vagina. An intact hymen cannot be used as an indication of virginity, even at birth. This is only a partial membrane as menstrual fluid and other secretions must be able to exit the body regardless of penile vaginal intercourse. The vaginal opening is located between the opening of the urethra and the anus. It is flanked by outlets to the Bartholin's glands or greater vestibular glands. The vagina shown at the bottom here is a muscular canal that serves as the entrance to the reproductive tract. It also serves as the exit from the uterus during menses and childbirth. The outer wall of the anterior and posterior vagina are formed into longitudinal columns or ridges, and the superior portion of the vagina, called the fornix, meets the protruding uterine cervix. The walls of the vagina are lined with an outer fibrous adventia, a middle layer of smooth muscle, and an inner mucous membrane with transverse folds called rugae. Together, the middle and inner layers allows the expansion of the vagina to accommodate intercourse and childbirth. The thin, perforated hymen can partially surround the opening to the vaginal orifice. 
The hymen can be ruptured with strenuous physical exercise, penile vaginal intercourse, and childbirth. The Bartholin's glands and the lesser vestibular glands, they're located near the clitoris, secrete mucus which keeps the vestibular area moist. The vagina is home to a normal population of microorganisms that help to protect against infection by pathogenic bacteria, yeast, or other organisms that can enter the vagina. In a healthy woman, the most predominant type of vaginal bacteria is from the genus Lactobacillus. This family of beneficial bacterial flora secretes lactic acid and thus protects the vagina by maintaining an acidic pH below 4.5. Potential pathogens are less likely to survive in these acidic conditions. Lactic acid, in combination with other vaginal secretions, makes the vagina a self-cleansing organ. However, douching, or washing out the vagina with fluid, can disrupt the normal balance of healthy microorganisms and actually increase a woman's risk for infections and irritation. Let's see here. Ovaries are the female gonads. Paired ovals, they are each about two to three centimeters in length, about the size of an almond. The ovaries are located within the pelvic cavity and are supported by the mesovarium, an extension of the peritoneum that connects the ovaries to the broad ligament. Extending from the mesovarium itself is the suspensory ligament that contains the ovarian blood and lymph vessels. Finally, the ovary itself is attached to the uterus via the ovarian ligament. The ovary comprises an outer covering of cubital epithelium called the ovarian surface epithelium that is superficial to a dense connective tissue covering called the tunica albuginea. Beneath the tunica albuginea is the cortex or outer portion of the organ. The cortex is composed of a tissue framework called the ovarian stroma that forms the bulk of the adult ovary. Oocytes develop within the outer layer of the stroma, each surrounded by supporting cells. This grouping of an oocyte and its supporting cells is called a follicle. The growth and development of ovarian follicles will be described shortly. Beneath the cortex lies the inner ovarian medulla the site of blood vessels, lymph vessels, and the nerves of the ovary. The ovarian cycle is a set of predictable changes in a female's oocytes and ovarian follicles. During a woman's reproductive years, it is roughly a 28-day cycle that can be correlated with, but is not the same as, the menstrual cycle. The cycle includes two interrelated processes, the oogenesis, which is the production of female gametes, and the folliculogenesis, the growth and development of ovarian follicles, oogenesis, uh, gametogenesis in females is called oogenesis. The process begins with the ovarian stem cells, or oogania. Oogania are formed during fetal development and divide via mitosis, much like spermatogonia in the testes. Unlike spermatogonia, however, oogonia form primary oocytes in the fetal ovary prior to birth. 
These primary oocytes are then arrested in the stage of meiosis, only to resume it years later, beginning at puberty, and continu continuing until the woman is near menopause, which is the cessation or completion of a woman's reproductive functions. The number of primary oocytes present in the ovaries declines from 1 to 2 million in an infant to approximately 400,000 at puberty, and then to zero by the end of menopause. The initiation of ovulation, the release of an oocyte from the ovary, marks the transition from puberty into reproductive maturity for women. From then on, throughout a woman's reproductive years, ovulation occurs approximately once every 28 days. Just prior to ovulation, a surge of luteinizing hormone triggers, the resumption of meiosis, is a primary oocyte. This initiates the transition from primary to secondary oocyte. However, this cell division does not result in two identical cells. Instead, the cytoplasm is divided unequally and one daughter cell is much larger than the other. This larger cell, the secondary oocyte, eventually leaves the ovary during ovulation. The smaller cell, called the first polar body, may or may not complete meiosis and produce second polar bodies. In either case, it eventually disintegrates. Therefore, even though oogenesis produces up to four cells, only one of them survives. How does the diploid secondary oocyte become an ovum? The haploid female gamete, meiosis of a secondary oocyte is completed only if a sperm succeeds in penetrating its barriers. Meiosis II then resumes, producing one haploid ovum that, at the instant of fertilization by a haploid sperm, becomes the first diploid cell of the new offspring, which makes it a zygote. Thus, the ovum can be thought of as a brief transitional haploid stage between the diploid oocyte and the diploid zygote. The larger amount of cytoplasm contained in the female gamete is used to supply the developing zygote with nutrients during the period between fertilization and implantation into the uterus. Interestingly, sperm contribute only DNA at fertilization, not cytoplasm. Therefore, the cytoplasm in all of the cytoplasmic organelles in the developing embryo are of maternal origin. This includes mitochondria, which contain their own DNA. Scientific research in the 1980s determined that mitochondrial DNA was maternally inherited, meaning that you can trace your mitochondrial DNA directly to your mother, her mother, and so on, back through your female ancestors. Folliculogenesis. Again, ovarian follicles are oocytes and their supporting cells. They grow and develop in a process called folliculogenesis, which typically leads to ovulation of one follicle approximately every 28 days, along with death to multiple other follicles. The death of ovarian follicles is called atresia and can occur at any point during follicular development. A female infant at birth will have 1 to 2 million oocytes within her ovarian follicles and that this number declines throughout life until menopause when no follicles remain. As you'll see next, uh, follicles progress from primordial to primary to secondary and 
tertiary stages prior to ovulation, with the oocyte inside the follicle remaining as a primary oocyte until right before ovulation. Follicleogenesis begins with follicles in a resting state. These small primordial follicles are present in newborn females and are the prevailing follicle type in the adult ovary. Primordial follicles have only a single flat layer of support cells called granulosa cells that surround the oocyte, and they can stay in this resting stage for years, some until right before menopause. After puberty, a few primordial follicles will respond to a recruitment signal each day and will join a pool of immature growing follicles called primary follicles. Primary follicles start with a single layer of granulosa cells, but the granulosa cells then become active in transition from a flat or squamous shape to a rounded cuboidal shape as they increase in size and proliferate. As the granulosa cells divide, the follicles, now called secondary follicles, increase in diameter, adding a new outer layer of connective tissue, blood vessels, and theca cells, cells that work with the granulosa cells to produce estrogens. Within the growing secondary follicle, the primary oocyte now secretes a thin cellular membrane called the zona pellucida that will play a critical role in fertilization. A thick fluid called follicular fluid that has formed between the granulosa cells also begins to collect in one larger pool, or antrum. Follicles in which the antrum has become large and fully formed are considered tertiary follicles or antral follicles. Several follicles reach the tertiary stage at the same time, and most of those will undergo artresia. The one that does not die will continue to grow and develop until ovulation, when it will expel its secondary oocytes, surrounded by several layers of granulosa cells from the ovary. Keep in mind that most follicles don't make it to this point, in fact roughly 99% of the follicles in the ovary will undergo atresia which can occur at any stage of the folliculogenesis. Hormonal control of the ovarian cycle. The process of development that we have just described, from primordial follicle to early tertiary follicle, takes approximately two months in humans. The final stages of development of a small cohort of tertiary follicles, ending with ovulation of a secondary oocyte, occur over a course of approximately 28 days. These changes are regulated by as many of the same hormones that regulate the male reproductive system, including GnRH, LH, and FSH. As in men, the hypothalamus produces GnRH, a hormone that signals the anterior pituitary gland to produce the gonadotropins FSH and LH, these gonadotropins leave the pituitary and travel through the bloodstream to the ovaries, where they bind to receptors on the granuloso and teca cells of the follicles. FSH stimulates the follicles to grow, hence its name of follicle-stimulating hormone, or FSH. 
and the five or six tertiary follicles expand in diameter. The release of LH also stimulates the granuloso and theca cells of the follicles to produce the sex steroid hormone estradiol, a type of estrogen. This phase of the ovarian cycle, when the tertiary follicles are growing and secreting estrogen, is known as the follicular phase. The more granuloso and theca cells a follicle has, that is, the larger and more developed it is, the more estrogen it will produce in response to LH stimulation. As a result of these large follicles producing large amounts of estrogen, systemic plasma estrogen concentrations increase following a classic negative feedback loop. The high concentrations of estrogen will stimulate the hypothalamus and pituitary to reduce the production of GnRH, LH, and FSH because the large tertiary follicles require FSH to grow and survive at this point. This decline in FSH caused by negative feedback leads most of them to die, which is atresia. Typically, only one follicle, now called the dominant follicle, will survive this reduction in FSH, and this follicle will be the one that releases an oocyte. Scientists have studied many factors that lead to a particular follicle becoming dominant, which is the size, the number of the granuloso cells, and the number of FSH receptors on those granuloso cells all contribute to a follicle becoming one surviving dominant follicle. When only one dominant follicle remains in the ovary, it again begins to secrete estrogen. It produces more estrogen than all of the developing follicles did together before the negative feedback occurred. It produces so much estrogen that the normal negative feedback doesn't occur. Instead, these extremely high concentrations of systemic plasma estrogen trigger a regulatory switch and the anterior pituitary that responds by secreting large amounts of LH and FSH into the bloodstream. The positive feedback loop by which more estrogen triggers release of more LH and FSH only occurs at this point in the cycle. It is this large burst of LH uh, called the LH surge that leads to ovulation of the dominant follicle. The LH surge induces many changes in the dominant follicle, including stimulating the resumption of meiosis of the primary oocyte to a secondary oocyte. As noted earlier, the polar body that results from unequal cell division simply degrades. The LH surge also triggers proteases, enzymes that cleave proteins to break down structural proteins in the ovary wall on the surface of the bulging dominant follicle. This degradation of the wall, combined with pressure from the large fluid-filled antrum, results in the expulsion of the oocyte, surrounded by granuloso cells into the peritoneal cavity. This release is ovulation. You will follow the ovulated oocyte as it travels towards the uterus, but there is one more important event that occurs in the ovarian cycle. The surge of LH also stimulates a change in the granuloso and theca cells that remain in the follicle after the oocyte has been ovulated. This change is called luteinization, 
Recall that the full name of LH is the luteinizing hormone, and it transforms the collapsed follicle into a new endocrine structure called the corpus luteum, a term meaning yellowish body. Instead of estrogen, the luteinized granuloso and theca cells of the corpus luteum begin to produce large amounts of the sex steroid hormone progesterone, a hormone that is critical for the establishment and maintenance of pregnancy. Progesterone triggers negative feedback at the hypothalamus and pituitary, which keeps GnRH, LH, and FSH secretions low, so no new dominant follicles develop at this time. The post-ovulatory phase of progesterone secretion is known as the luteal phase of the ovarian cycle. If pregnancy does not occur within 10 to 12 days, the corpus luteum will stop secreting progesterone and degrade into the corpus albicans, a non-functional whitish body that will disintegrate in the ovary over a period of several months. During this time of reduced progesterone secretion, FSH and LH are once again stimulated, and the follicular phase begins again, with a new cohort of early tertiary follicles beginning to grow and secrete estrogen. The uterine tubes, also called fallopian tubes or oviducts, serve as the conduit of the oocyte from the ovary to the uterus. Each of the two uterine tubes is close to, but not directly connected to, the ovary and divided into sections. The isthmus is the narrow medial end of the uterine tube that is connected to the uterus. The wide distal infundibulum flares out with slender finger-like projections called fimbriae. The middle region of the tube, called the ampulla, is where fertilization often occurs. The uterine tubes also have three layers, an outer serosa, a middle smooth muscle layer, and an inner mucosal layer. In addition to its mucus secreting cells, the inner mucosa contains silated cells that beat in the direction of the uterus, producing a current that will be critical to move the oocyte. Following ovulation, the secondary oocyte surrounded by a few granuloso cells is released into the peritoneal cavity. The nearby uterine tube, either left or right, receives the oocyte. Unlike sperm, oocytes lack flagella and therefore cannot move on their own. So how do they travel into the uterine tube and towards the uterus? High concentrations of estrogen that occur around the time of ovulation induce contractions of the smooth muscle along the length of the uterine tube. These contractions occur every 4 to 8 seconds and the result is a coordinated movement that sweeps the surface of the ovary and the pelvic cavity. Current flowing toward the uterus is generated by coordinated beating of the cilia that line the outside and lumen of the length of the uterine tube. These cilia, cilia beat more strongly in response to the high estrogen concentrations that occur around the time of ovulation. As a result of these mechanisms, the oocyte granuloso cells complex is pulled into the interior of the tube 
Once inside the muscular contractions and beating, cilia move the oocyte slowly toward the uterus. When fertilization does occur, sperm typically meet the egg while it is still moving through the ambula. If the oocyte is successfully fertilized, the resulting zygote will begin to develop into two cells, then four, and so on. As it makes its way through the uterine tube and into the uterus, there it will implant and continue to grow. If the egg is not fertilized, it will simply degrade, either in the uterine tube or in the uterus, where it may be shed with the next menstrual period. The opening the open-ended structure of the uterine tubes can have significant health consequences if bacteria or other contagions enter through the vagina and move through the uterus into the tubes and then into the pelvic cavity. If this is left unchecked, a bacterial infection, sepsis, could quickly become life-threatening. The spread of an infection in this manner is of special concern when unskilled practitioners perform abortions in non-sterile conditions. Sepsis is also associated with sexually transmitted bacterial infections, especially gonorrhea and chlamydia. These increase a woman's risk for pelvic inflammatory disease or PID, infection of the uterine tubes or other reproductive organs. Even when resolved, PID can leave scar tissue in the tubes, leading to infertility. The uterus and cervix. The uterus is the muscular organ that nourishes and supports the growing embryo. Its average size is approximately 5 centimeters wide by 7 centimeters long, which is approximately 2 inches by 3 inches. When a female is not pregnant, it has three sections. The portion of the uterus superior to the opening of the uterine tubes is called the fundus. The middle section of the uterus is called the body of uterus or corpus. The cervix is the narrow inferior portion of the uterus that projects into the vagina. The cervix produces mucus secretions that become thin and stringy under the influence of high systemic plasma estrogen concentrations, and these secretions can facilitate sperm movement through the reproductive tract. Several ligaments maintain the position of the uterus within the abdomopelvic cavity. The broad ligament is a fold of peritoneum that serves as a primary support for the uterus, extending laterally from both sides of the uterus and attaching it to the pelvic wall. The round ligament attaches to the uterus near the uterine tubes and extends to the labia majora. Finally, the uterus sacral ligament stabilizes the uterus posteriorly by its connection from the cervix to the pelvic wall. The wall of the uterus is made up of three layers. The most superficial layer is the serous membrane or the paramedic parametrum, which consists of epithelial tissue that covers the exterior portion of the uterus. The middle layer, or the myometrium, is a thick layer of smooth muscle responsible for uterine contractions. Most of the uterus is myometrial tissue, and the muscle fibers run horizontally, vertically, and diagonally, allowing the powerful con contractions that occur during labor and the less powerful contractions or cramps that help to expel menstrual blood during a woman's period. 
anteriorly directed myometrial contractions also occur near the time of ovulation and are thought to possibly facilitate the transport of sperm through the female reproductive tract. The innermost layer of the uterus is called the endometrium. The endometrium contains a connective tissue lining, the laminea pro propria, which is covered by epithelial tissue that lines the lumen. Structurally, the endometrium consists of two layers, the stratum basalis and the stratum functional functionalis, the basal and functional layers. The stratum basals layer is part of the laminea propia and is adjacent to the myometrium. This layer does not shed during menses. In contrast, the thicker stratum functionalis layer contains the glandular portion of the lamina propia and the endothelial tissue that lines the uterine lumen. It is the stratum functionalis that grow and thickens in response to increased levels of estrogen and progesterone. In the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle, special branches off of the uterine artery, called spiral arteries, supply the thickened stratum functionalis. This inner functional layer provides the proper site of implantation for the fertilized egg, and should fertilization not occur, it is, it is only the stratum functionalist layer of the endometrium that sheds during menstruation. Recall that during the follicular phase of the ovarian cycle, the tertiary follicles are growing and secreting estrogen. At the same time, the stratum functionalis of the endometrium is thickening to prepare for a potential implantation. The post-ovulatory increase in progesterone, which characterized the luteal phase, is key for maintaining a thick stratum functionalis. As long as a functional corpus luteum is present in the ovary, the endometrial lining is prepared for implantation. Indeed, if an embryo implants, signals are sent to the corpus luteum to continue secreting progesterone to maintain the endometrium and thus maintain the pregnancy. If an embryo does not implant, no signal is sent to the corpus luteum and it degrades, ceasing progesterone production and ending the luteal phase. Without progesterone, the endometrium thins and under the influence of prostate prostaglandins, the spiral arteries of the endometrium constrict and rupture, preventing oxygenated blood from reaching the endometrial tissue. As a result, endometrial tissue dies in blood, pieces of the endometrial tissue and white blood cells are shed through the vagina during menstruation or the menses. The first menses after puberty, called menarche, can occur either before or after the first ovulation. The menstrual cycle. Now that we have discussed the maturation of the cohort of tertiary follicles in the ovary, the buildup and then shedding of the endometrial lining in the uterus, and the function of the uterine tubes and vagina, we can put everything together to talk about the three phases of the menstrual cycle. The series of changes in which the uterine lining is shed, rebuilds, and prepares for implantation. The timing of the menstrual cycle starts with the first day of menses, referred to as 
Day one of a woman's period, cycle length is determined by counting the days between the onset of bleeding in two subsequent cycles. Because the average length of a woman's menstrual cycle is 28 days, this is the time period used to identify the timing of events in the cycle. However, the length of the menstrual cycle varies among women, and even in the same woman from one cycle to the next, typically from 21 to 32 days. Just as the hormones produced by the granuloso and theca cells of the ovary drive the follicular and luteal phases of the ovarian cycle, they also control the three distinct phases of the menstrual cycle. These are the menses phase, the proliferative phase, and the secretory phase. The menses phase of the menstrual cycle is the phase during which the lining is shed, that is the days that the woman menstruates. Although it averages approximately 5 days, the menses phase can last from 2 to 7 days or longer. The menses phase occurs during the early days of the follicular phase of the ovarian cycle, when progesterone, FSH, and LH levels are low. Recall that progesterone concentrations decline as a result of the degradation of the corpus luteum, marking the end of the luteal phase. This decline in progesterone triggers the shedding of the stratum functionalis of the endometrium. Once menstrual flow ceases, the endometrium begins to proli proliferate again, marking the beginning of the proliferative phase of the menstrual cycle. It occurs when the granuloso and deca cells of the tertiary follicles begin to produce increased amounts of estrogen. These rising estrogen concentrations stimulate the endometrial lining to rebuild. Recall that the high estrogen concentrations will eventually lead to a decrease in FSH as a result of negative feedback, resulting in artresia of all but one of the developing tertiary follicles. The switch to positive feedback, which occurs with the elevated estrogen production from the dominant follicle, then stimulates the LH surge that will trigger ovulation. In a typical 28-day menstrual cycle, ovulation occurs on day 14. Ovulation marks the end of the prolifer proliferative phase as well as the end of the follicular phase. Secretory phase, in addition to prompting the LH surge, high estrogen levels increase the uterine tube contractions that facilitate the pickup and transfer of the ovulated oocyte. High estrogen levels also slightly decrease the acidity of the vagina, making it more hospitable to sperm. In the ovary, the luteinization of the granuloso cells of the collapsed follicle forms the progesterone-producing corpus luteum, marking the beginning of the luteal phase of the ovarian cycle. In the uterus, progesterone from the corpus luteum begins the secretory phase of the menstrual cycle, in which the endometrial lining prepares for implantation. Over the next 10 to 12 days, the endometrial glands secrete a fluid rich in glycogen, if fertilization has occurred, this fluid will nourish the ball of cells now developing from the zygote. At the same time, the spiral arteries develop to provide blood to thickened stratum functionalis, 
If no pregnancy occurs within approximately 10 to 12 days, the corpus luteum will degrade into the corpus albicans. Levels of both estrogen and progesterone will fall, and the endometrium will grow thinner. Prostaglandins will be secreted that cause constriction of the spiral arteries, reducing oxygen supply. The endometrial tissue will die, resulting in menses or the first day of the next cycle. The breasts, whereas the breasts are located far from the other female reproductive organs, they are considered accessory organs of the female reproductive system. The function of the breast is to supply milk to an infant in a process called lactation. The external features of the breast include a nipple surrounded by a pigmented areola, whose coloration may deepen during pregnancy. The areola is typically circular and can vary in size from 25 to 100 millimeters in diameter. The areolar region is characterized by small raised areolar glands that secrete lubricating fluid during lactation to protect the nipple from chafing. When a baby nurses or draws milk from the breast, the entire areolar region is taken into the mouth. Breast milk is produced by the mammary glands, which are modified sweat glands. The milk itself exists uh, the milk itself exits the breast through the nipple via 15 to 20 lactiferous ducts that open on the surface of the nipple. These lactiferous ducts each extend to a lactiferous sinus that connects to a glandular lobe within the breast itself that contains groups of milk-secreting cells in clusters called alveoli. The clusters can change in size depending on the amount of milk in the alveolar, alveolar lumen. Once milk is made in the alveoli, stimulated myopethial cells that surround the alveoli contract to push the milk to the lactiferous sinuses. From here, the baby can draw milk through the lactiferous ducts by suckling. The lobes themselves are surrounded by fat tissue, which determines the size of the breast. Breast size differs between individuals and does not affect the amount of milk produced. Supporting the breasts are multiple bands of connective tissue called suspensory ligaments that connect the breast tissue to the dermis of the overlying skin. During the normal hormonal fluctuations in the menstrual cycle, breast tissue responds to changing levels of estrogen and progesterone which can lead to swelling and breast tenderness in some individuals, especially during the secretory phase. If pregnancy occurs, the increase in hormones leads to further development of the mammary tissue and enlargement of the breasts. Hormonal birth control. Birth control pills take advantage of the negative feedback system that regulates the ovarian and menstrual cycles to stop ovulation and prevent pregnancy. Typically, they work by providing a constant level of both estrogen and progesterone, which negatively feeds back onto the hypothalamus and pituitary, thus preventing the release of FSH and LH. Without FSH, the follicles do not mature, and without the LH surge, ovulation does not occur. Although the estrogen in birth control pills does stimulate some thickening of the endometrial wall, it is reduced compared with a normal cycle and is less likely to support implantation. 
Some birth control pills contain 21 active pills containing hormones and 7 inactive pills, uh, which are placebos. The decline in hormones during the week that the woman takes the placebo pills triggers menses, although it is typically lighter than a normal menstrual flow. Because of the reduced endometrial thickening, newer types of birth control pills have been developed that deliver low-dose estrogens and progesterone for the entire cycle. These are meant to be taken 365 days a year, and menses never occurs. While some women prefer to have the proof of a lack of pregnancy that a monthly period provides, menstruation every 28 days is not required for health reasons, and there are no reported adverse effects of not having a menstrual period in an otherwise healthy individual. Because birth control pills function by providing constant estrogen and progesterone levels and disrupting negative feedback, skipping even just one or two pills at certain points of the cycle, or even being several hours late taking the pill can lead to an increase in FSH and LH and result in ovulation. It is important, therefore, that the woman follow the directions on the birth control package to successfully prevent pregnancy.